0: Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk. A lot of these Old Testament prophets spoke of a Messiah who was to come, but they just didn't know that his name was Jesus quite yet. They called him names like Wonderful and Counselor, Mighty God, Prince of Peace, Everlasting Father. And yet, Advent is about us having hope. So earlier this morning, I asked Kenan to light our first candle. Advent, long expected. I wanted to give you something visual to be reminded this holiday season. A a season of hustle and bustle, a season of going from place to place, Amazon, Amazon, Uh, getting online, purchasing gifts, all of the above, but for what it's really about, a Messiah who was long expected. Today we want to focus our attention on the prophecy of hope. The prophecy of hope. The word advent I remember when it was first used at Shanghai so long ago when I was just a little guy. And I must not have been listening very closely because I didn't really understand what it meant. It comes from a Latin word, adventus, which means the coming or visit. And what we're going to try to do over the next few weeks is light an advent candle that represents a story that either Keenan or I are going to be preaching on that leads up to the birth of Jesus. So today, the candle, prophecy candle, is about hope. Well, next week we'll talk about the Bethlehem candle, which is love. Then the shepherd's candle, which is about joy. And then the angel's candle is peace. And then on December the 26th, the day after Christmas, the rather large white candle there in the middle, the candle of the Christ, of purity. And when I thought about this and Kenan and I began to bounce ideas off of one another and both of us being voracious readers and loving to study, recent scholarship indicates that there are over 300 prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament alone. And each and every one of these prophecies gives us hope in this season. So maybe you're watching today from home, or you're here on campus and you've given up hope. Maybe you told yourself, looking in the mirror this morning, this is it. I'm going to go one last time. And if something doesn't change, if something doesn't happen, I'm done with the whole church gig. We're glad you're here. And we hope that maybe a lyric of a song or maybe even us participating in the Lord's table in just a few minutes, or the sermon about to be preached, will touch your heart. Well, the first and greatest word of prophecy that was given in Scripture, in my humble opinion, is in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, which simply says that I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. I remember being at Heritage Bible College so long ago, and Dr. Lee Hudson talking to us for the very first time I heard the word Proto-Evangelium. It's this incredible theological word that simply means the first gospel. It's the first time in Scripture, and again, Scripture's only three chapters old, that we hear about the first gospel. So I want to I want to give you on the front side of the sermon today two points to consider based upon verse fifteen. The first point being the curse of sin on mankind because of Adam's sin. Now, of course, until Adam and Eve fell, everything was perfect. The lion would preferably lay down with the lamb. There were no omnivores. There were no carnivores. Everything was a herbivore. It was eating plants to sustain itself. And then sin came in. Romans 5 and 12, therefore just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, the first Adam, and then death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sin. That sort of gives us in a part of one verse a glimpse of everything. It was perfect, and then man let sin in, And because of that sin, death comes. Many of you in this room are in the medical field. And you know about death. You've been there. You've checked the vital signs of someone who was passing from death to life. And yet through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people. Just over the last few days, our church family has been touched by death. Monty's mom went home to be with the Lord Miss Joyce Sean's son went home to be with the Lord. And maybe others in our church family, I want you to know death came to all people. And if Jesus tarries his coming long enough, even though we may be very young and we have our whole life in front of us this morning, death will come to us as well. That's why we must be prepared. Why? Because all have sinned. And just a few verses later in verse 16, the judgment followed one's sin and brought condemnation. And then Paul goes on further to explain in verse 18, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people. All it took was one sin to taint the whole world, to stain every one of us in our mother's womb. And it's been passed from generation to generation to generation to generation. So what are you saying, Pastor? I'm saying verse 23 of Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So there is a curse of sin on mankind because of Adam's sin. And there's only one remedy, and it's our hope in Jesus Christ. It's what the holiday season is all about. It's not about getting a Best Buy from Best Buy. It is about Jesus the Christ The son of the living God who came as the God-man. 100% human, 100% God in the hypostatic union. And yet we find ourselves today still wrestling because we have all sinned and we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Which brings us to our second point from the proto-evangelium. God's provision for a savior from sin who takes the curse on himself. When you look in the mirror, when I look in the mirror, we we see God's creation, yes, but we see imperfection, we see sin, we see bad choices, bad decisions that equals bad consequences. And yet our only hope, the only hope, is Jesus Christ. Because it goes on to say from Romans 3.23 to Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's a gift. That's the greatest gift that you can receive at Christmas time. That's the greatest gift that you can give to someone else is by sharing the gospel with them. Well, the Apostle Peter sort of sums this up in 1 Peter 3 and 18 when he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus for us, that he might bring us to God. The reason why our Savior went to the cross was to bring us to God. 2 Corinthians 5, he made him who knew no sin to be sin. And he did it on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So now, when God looks down, he don't see, oh, sinful Joel. The Joel that messes up. The Joel that makes bad choices. The Joel that makes decisions. He sees his sinless son because I've been robed and I've been clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And only Jesus can do that. Your good works can't do that for you. You going to the right place and hanging out with the right folks and living in the right zip code can't do that for you. Only Jesus Christ can do that for us. Okay, pastor, well then why did Jesus come? As a fulfillment to this prophecy of hope. It's a legitimate question. John answered it this way in 1 John 3 and 8. That the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Now, there are some of us in this room that still got the workings of the devil going on inside of us. He's in our head, he's in our heart, and he's consumed our body. And that's the reason why we're doing what we're doing. And we know it's antithetical to the Word of God. But Jesus came to destroy that work of the devil that's now at work in your life. And would you be willing Maybe today to say, Lord, I repent of my sin. I believe in the death and the burial and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this sermon could last three hours long. It's not. But the Proto-Evangelium is the first of hundreds of Messianic prophecies that I could possibly cover. But the prophecy of hope is mentioned several times in the Psalms. Psalm 39. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait my hope is in you Joe and I put our hope in one another when we stood on December the 19th 1992 and we made covenant before God and man that we would be husband and wife it doesn't mean that it's been perfect since that time there have been times that even in our hope we have disappointed one another and we've struggled most marriages do but if you and I are willing today to say, yes, I know what I'm supposed to do as a husband. I know what I'm supposed to do as a wife. But yet, as a follower of Jesus, my hope is not going to be in another man or in another woman. My hope is going to be in Jesus. Because he never lets you down. Never has and he never will. Who is your hope in today? Who, who can you expect with certainty that's always going to be there? And, and, the, and the phone's never going to be busy and they're always going to pick up. His name is Jesus. It goes on to say in Psalm 71, For you, O Lord, are my hope, my trust, O Lord, from my youth. Now, a lot of us in this room have the benefit of getting saved early on. I got saved as an eight-year-old. Some of you got saved as a teenager. Some of you got saved later on. But the psalmist says, From my youth, for you, O Lord, are my hope and my trust, O Lord. Is he your hope and trust today? If he's not, he needs to be. Because I can assure you that if we are out of balance and we're putting more hope and trust and faith in people than we are in God, we're going to be a disappointed lot. We're going to be disappointed every time we turn around. We're going to be disappointed in our business. We're going to be disappointed in our career. We're going to be disappointed in everyone and everything when our hope and trust is just in people. That's why the psalmist says, our hope and our trust should be in the Lord. So where did it all begin? Where did this hope start? Well, I think the best place to start is where God's Word starts. Genesis chapter one, verses one and two. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Let me tell you what the Holy Spirit did during my study time this week. There are some who are either watching online or here this morning in one of the three services that for whatever reason, I was led to appeal to you intellectually. Not just spiritually, which is always, but intellectually. For whatever reason, you find yourself an agnostic. You find yourself an atheist. And I don't even believe in all this. I don't even know why I'm here. I don't even know why I'm listening. But yet, someone has prayed for you and here you are. So I want to carry you back to the early part of the 20th century, 1916. One of the smartest men of that century, maybe one of the smartest men ever, Albert Einstein, did not like where some calculations were taking him. If his theory of general relativity was true, it meant that the universe was not eternal, but it had a beginning. I don't need Albert Einstein to tell me that. I've read the Bible, amen? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But Einstein's calculations revealed a definite beginning to all time, all matter, and all space. Now again, Genesis 1, verses 1 through 31, give us all these details. But in a later interview, Einstein called his discovery irritating. He wanted our universe and all that it encompasses to be self-existent, not reliant on any outside cause, but the universe appears to be one giant effect. Well, three years later, a cosmologist by the name of Arthur Eddington conducted an experiment during a solar eclipse which confirmed that general relativity is true. The universe had a beginning. Again, I don't need Einstein or Eddington to tell me that, but there are some that do. Maybe you find yourself as an intellectual and you think you're smarter than everybody, and you just might be. But in all of your intelligence, you've missed out on Jesus. You've missed out on the hope of Advent. You have missed out on in the beginning, God created. So, like Einstein, Eddington was not happy with the implications. He wrote in his book, philosophically, the notion of a beginning of the present order of nature is repugnant to me. I should like to find a genuine loophole. See, and that's where most people who don't believe in God, they just got to find a loophole. They don't even want to believe science. They certainly bypass in the beginning God created, but then you got a guy like Eddington, a guy like Einstein, who are brilliant scientists who say that, yeah, our universe had a beginning. Well, a few years later, 1929, Einstein makes a pilgrimage to California to look through Edwin Hubble's 100-inch telescope at the Mount Wilson Observatory. And what he saw was irrefutable. And this is what he said about that visit, to know how God created the world. I am not interested in this or that phenomenon in the spectrum of this or that element. I want to know his thought, and the rest are details. That's Einstein talking. Yeah, he needed a haircut, but he was Einstein. And he was brilliant. His IQ is off the charts, and yet he believed. Our universe had a beginning. And I want to know why God and how God created the world. Well, Scripture gives us a little glimpse into it. Isaiah, chapter 40, verse 25 and 26. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. We're talking about our great hope in this holiday season is the same Creator who named the stars knows your name, and He knows everything about you. There's there's nothing secret. I know that many of us may do something in the dark or beyond the eyes of others, but God sees. And He knows your name. He goes on in Matthew 10, and I love this verse, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. I thought about that over the last few days, and when we got the phone call that Steve Sean, Miss Joyce's son, had passed away, the longtime uh, worship pastor over at University Baptist Church in Huntsville, You could tell in his writing on Facebook the last few days he was ready to go home. And and, and for some of us, we've we've planted our roots too deeply here. I don't think it's sinful, I just think it's who we are. But C.S. Lewis wrote this a few years before he passed away in November of 1963. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy... The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. See, you and I were really not made for here. We were made for fellowship with Him. Oh, yes, we're to enjoy these moments. We're in the land between right now. Advent, the coming of Jesus. He came in Bethlehem, but praise God, one day He's also coming back. So, right now, in the land in between, we can enjoy the journey. Watching our children grow up. Holding our grandchild. All of these are blessings and favors of Almighty God. But yet, some of us are still stubborn. I see the candle. I hear what you have said, or I've heard what you've said so far, Joel, but is there more? Well, believe it or not, there is. There is. It's been written that the beginning of the end for atheism was an argument called the cosmological argument. Cosmological comes from a Greek word, cosmos, which would get the word world or universe. And the cosmological argument is the argument from the beginning of the universe, that there was a beginning. And if the universe had a beginning, then the universe had a cause. So let's put it in logical form for those of you who have high IQs. For those of you that are still not convinced, well, number one, everything that had a beginning had a cause. Hmm, that's truth. Well, the universe had a beginning. Hmm. Therefore, the universe had a cause. We call this the law of causality. It is a fundamental principle of science. Now, you say, okay, pastor, are you blending science with religion? Perhaps. Perhaps. Because I believe that even those who are intellectuals and those who consider themselves very smart, they need Jesus too. Individuals who will influence entire generations by writings they put in journals, they need Jesus as well. And maybe, just maybe today, someone will watch this video. Someone's listening right now. That could change everything. Because without the law of causality, science is impossible. Francis Bacon, who is considered the father of modern science, he said, true knowledge is knowledge by causes. In other words, science is a search for causes. Zeke is involved with this as well. We're we're walking in a journey right now with Danny. She's seven. She's asking a lot of great questions. But Zeke probably could testify as well that when he was an only child for a number of years, I didn't want him to wind up being one of the statistics of every pastor's kid. Well, mom and dad made me get saved and made me get baptized, and so therefore sometime down the road i got to do it again. We wanted the Holy Spirit to speak to Zeke on God's timing, in God's way, and when that happened, it happened. And we believe we did that for him. Well, we're trying to do the same thing for Danny. But a few weeks ago, Danny gave me this question, who made God? I said, go ask your brother. The atheist will ask, well, if everything needs a cause, then God needs a cause too. Well, it's really rather simple. You see, the law of causality does not say that everything needs a cause. It says that everything that comes to be needs a cause. God did not come to be. No one made God. He is unmade. He's an eternal being. God did not have a beginning, so therefore he did not need a cause. And again, you come from a science perspective, we go hmm, because Einstein was right when he said that science without religion is lame and religion without science is blind. Religion can be informed. Religion can be confirmed by science as it is by the cosmological argument. So I did a little bit more research because I knew I would not got into the high weeds with this message and I said, I need another source. Well, there's a nanoscientist named James Tour who wrote, only a rookie who knows nothing about science would say that science takes away from faith. If you really study science, it will bring you closer to God. It really will. If you are unbiased. And see, and that's the problem today. We all pray with a bias. We all walk into situations with a bias. We all have inclinations one way or the other, but if you could walk in neutral and then you see the evidence in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So scientific evidence for God does not end with the cosmological argument. For many, the precision with which the universe exploded into existence provides even more persuasive evidence for the existence of God. That evidence is called the teleological argument. Greek word telos, Which means design. So it's not just a bunch of things out in the universe warbling against one another. No, there's order in the chaos. So the teleological argument goes like this every design had a designer, the universe has highly complex design, and I think we all could agree with that. And then, thirdly, therefore, the universe had a designer. Now don't don't mistake, all of this is part of our prophetic hope. All of this fits his hand in glove because the teleological argument is really a subcategory of the cosmological argument. It focuses on the evidence of not only harmony but also order and design in the universe. If God had not created us where we are and how we are, we couldn't exist. It takes more faith to believe in the Big Bang theory than it does in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is in the beginning, God. I did some research. There's over 200 billion galaxies in the observable eye. The Milky Way galaxy, where our little solar system and this little orb of dirt that we live on, that's where we exist. The sun's 93 million miles away. The moon is 238,000 miles away. And if that varied a percentage point or two, there could be no life on planet Earth. You don't think there's order? You don't think there's harmony? Not only is he the creator, he's the sustainer. That's where our hope is today. Sir Isaac Newton, I learned about him at Owens Junior High School a long time ago. He confirmed the validity of this argument when he viewed the design of our solar system. He wrote, the most beautiful system of the sun, planets, and comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. He's another one of those high IQ guys. But what does God's Word say? Enough about Einstein, Eddington, and Newton. Psalm 19.1 The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. I was up early this morning like most mornings. The sun had not yet started to peak over the horizon. But when it did, it cried out and said, I'm here. Believe in me. Trust me. Have hope in me. And I know that maybe there have been some things that's happened in your life recently that you're going, man, Joel, I'm trying. I'm trying to believe. The teleological argument is supported by the scriptures and by nature itself. To just look upward into the sky by day or by night is to see the sun and the moon and the stars and the clouds coming from a wise creator who has made them and sustains them in their order. All right, pastor, how can you say all this? You're not a scientist. You're just a pastor. You're exactly right. But I believe that God made the universe so that it would show forth the excellence of his character and show forth his glory. Not only in the minute details that an Einstein an Eddington or a Newton would desire but for each and every one of us who have questions where did I come from why am I here and most importantly where am I going and maybe that's where you find your life right now maybe you're involved in a lot of frenetic activity that has no return you're just busy I think the Lord wants some order and some harmony into what we do for Him. So as I close, two passages of Scripture, Revelation 4 and 11, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. I'm a simpleton. I believe it. I believe it by faith. I don't have to look through a telescope. I believe it. Well, what's cool, when I look through the telescope, it confirms what I believe. Phew. Now again, you can't come with a bias. You've got to be willing to say, what does the evidence tell me? Let me tell you what the evidence says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And everything he wrote after that is the truth as well. Hope has a name. His name is is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Psalm 148 is one of those cool Psalms I would encourage you to get your iPhone out and go out late at night and when the sky is filled with stars and maybe there's a beautiful moon as well that you read unto the Father, Psalm 148. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens and praise Him in the heights. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun, moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. And let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. This holiday season don't forget who created you. While you're busy buying and giving and decorating and cooking and everything that this season affords, don't forget he created you and he has a purpose for you and he has a plan for